Good morning, if you would. Let's grab a Bible. We're going to start in Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23. So go ahead and open up to that place. It is good to see you this morning. We have a good crowd. I'm glad to be home. Uh, last week I spent in uh, Irving in the Dallas area. And uh, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to them about uh, their uh, Bible reading plan where they're studying through the Year with Jesus material that we went through a few years back. And I enjoyed being there. Barely got out of there. There was a blizzard on our way home. And then I get to the Arkansas state line and it all stops. We don't dare want any snow up here. For some reason, it's all in Texas. Uh, but uh, we had a good trip and glad to be home. Appreciate Brent uh, filling in for me. Brent is not here this morning. He is preaching with the East Side Church in Conway. Uh, he got a call uh, to preach over there this week, and so that's where he is. So be thinking about them and praying for them. This morning is a Q&A morning. And uh, for those who are not uh, familiar with what we do, we try to, when we are able to have this service, which of course we were not able to have uh, in the month of December, uh, we try to take one of these assembly periods and uh, answer questions that you have submitted to me uh, in one form or another. And uh, I'm going to take some time to think through my answer and to study through and then to try to present the best that I can an answer for the whole group to consider uh, to some difficult questions. This is a a thing that I think is important for us as, as you have questions and uh, wonder about how certain passages and ideas interface with what you experience. And uh, so you want to let me know about that and involve me in that. And so we can kind of, uh, instead of just answering a question once and then somebody else asks it again, usually I found these questions have sort of a broad interest. And uh, so that's why we do it this way. So the first question uh, that we're going to answer, we're going to try to get through two today. Uh, we'll see how that goes, but I, I assume we can get through two. First question is, is addiction a choice? And uh, this is a little bit of a hot topic in our time because there is a strong movement afoot in the therapeutic community to try to declare all addictions as diseases. So if you have a, an addiction, instead of saying, no, this is my fault, there is a, a big push to say, no, this is a disease. And uh, so... The Bible does address uh, the, the concept of addiction, but I need your attention as we go through this because the answer to this question is a bit nuanced. It's not just a yes or no question, as you'll see. But let's look here in Proverbs 23. I want to show you some of how the Bible's language works about the concept of addiction. Proverbs 23 and verse 29. It says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. So you can tell the tone of the passage is a warning about alcohol and that there is an appeal to alcohol. Don't look at it when it's red and it's swirling in the cup and you think, oh, that would be fun, that would be nice. Look at where that goes. And he talks about where that goes and he talks about woe and sorrow and redness of eyes and complaints and wounds without cause. You don't even know where they came from. And uh, he, he talks about uh, sort of like a, a trip, you know, where, where this person is out of their mind thinking they're on the ocean, thinking they're in a boat and then when everything finally crashes down and they come to and they're, they're sort of feeling hung over, then in verse 25, when shall I awake that I can have another drink? This is addiction. Addiction is the idea that 
against our better judgment, even when we know this is not good for us, we go back and do the same thing over and over again. That's the, the idea of addiction. There is an, an irrationality to it that we know better and sometimes we don't even want to and yet we continue to do something. Sometimes that is a behavior like a gambling addiction. Sometimes that is a substance like here it is alcohol. But one way or another, it's the same basic thought pattern. And the concern is, well, if someone wants to do something and yet they end up doing the opposite, they end up doing the bad thing, is that really a choice? And as I said, the answer is a bit nuanced. Uh, Go with me over to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. So the way the Bible usually describes addiction is to use a different metaphor that is probably not nearly as popular today or as well understood today as it would have been in Bible times. And that is the the metaphor of slavery. So in Titus chapter 2, this is almost an aside in how Paul is instructing Titus to teach the people on Crete. And he's talking about here is sound teaching, healthy teaching for the different groups of people. He says in Titus 2 and verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Slaves to much wine is a a vivid description of someone who is not just, they've done this once, but it is, you know, in some ways we used to use the term drunk this way, that someone is a drunk, not because they have one time gotten drunk, but because they persistently go back. It is a habit. And then the same way, Paul is using this term to talk about someone who is a slave to much wine. They are addicted. They are devoted. And there is a, a in the description of deacons, in 1 Timothy 3, there's the same idea. He talks about deacons not being addicted to or devoted to much wine. I want you to know addiction is much broader than alcohol. These two examples we've looked at do talk about alcohol, but the Bible paints it more broadly too. Uh, this is 2 Peter 2.19 talking about false teachers, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. So he goes on to describe these people, by the way, as those who have gotten washed and then returned to their vomit or gotten back polluted again after they've become clean. So it's something where against better judgment, they become slaves. And and Peter is very broad about that. Whatever overcomes a person. That could be a behavior or a thought process. That could be a person. That could be a substance. Whatever it is, that is an enslaving relationship. And that's the concern in the Bible about something like addiction, is the idea of enslavement. So uh, I want you to go with me over to 1 Corinthians 6 now. 1 Corinthians 6. We're we're just kind of getting the lay of the biblical land here about the idea of addiction and slavery. 1 Corinthians 6. It says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, 1 Corinthians 6 and 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So what what is said here in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything to me indicates that Paul is saying there may be things that are fine in and of themselves, but if they create this addiction relationship, this master-slave relationship, they're a problem. So you can't just say, oh, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. And in fact, two of the examples he is using here are food and sex, which in and of themselves are good. And yet we all know that there are ways that food and sex can become addictive and problematic in terms of behavior. So Paul is saying, don't just argue it's fine because God made it and God made good things. 
you also have to say, what is my relationship to it? Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. So what we've established then is that the Bible recognizes the idea of addiction and that God doesn't want his people to be slaves to anything but him. So I think it's important as we answer the question, is addiction a choice to think through the biblical progression? And I want to take you through this for a moment because before we can answer yes or no, which you'll see I kind of answer both, um, before we answer yes or no, we have to think through what's actually happening in an addiction relationship. So uh, the biblical progression is something like this. Sin has the power to enslave us. Let's go over to Romans 6. Romans 6. Don't worry, we'll look around in Romans here while we're, while we're here because we're going to get into chapter 7 as well. In Romans 6, this is verse 16. It's a very simple concept. I don't think that there's a lot of controversy to this, at least not among Christians. Romans 6, 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So you're the slaves of the one you obey. Those desires, those impulses, those behaviors, those substances, they control you. And if you obey them and you submit yourself to them, you present yourself to them, then they become your master. And that's an important idea. That is, it's a different idea than we normally have with sin. Because I think we tend to think of sin sort of like breaking the law. That when you break the law, you might break the law in one instance. I shouldn't have been speeding right there. I shouldn't have run that red light. But that doesn't make you necessarily a slave to law breaking. That's a different kind of relationship. But that's what scripture describes, that sin has the power to enslave us. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So that is a problem because... What begins in sort of a I choose this kind of way then ends up in a slave relationship. So that's the next thing. Sin has power to enslave us. We choose sin, then find ourselves enslaved. So the New Testament teaches that we choose sin. Sin comes from within us. This is James 1.15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it is our own desires that we act on and we choose to sin. Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, and he has a long list of sins. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So we cannot argue in the face of passages like these that sin is not our fault. James, Jesus are saying, yes, you chose to sin. But something happens there that we choose sin, but then because sin has the power to enslave us, we then find ourselves enslaved, which is a little more than we usually bargain for. We wanted to do the thing, and now because we've done the thing, we find ourselves in a relationship that's beyond what we expected. So look with me in Romans 7 now, and I'll show you what that looks like. Romans 7, and I want to start at verse 14, where Paul is describing, and and let me be clear, I believe Paul is describing how he was before he became a Christian when he was trying to serve God under the law of Moses. But I think there's some things here that will resonate with us if we have ever been in a relationship like this with sin. Romans 7, 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Notice that terminology, sold under sin, which is a slave term. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, 
It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This is a description of slavery to sin. That we want to get out, but we can't. We are sold under sin. We want to do different, but we can't. I don't have the ability to do it, he says. The reason is you are enslaved. Sin is in control, not you. So how does that begin? Well, it begins with us choosing sin, but then it leads us into this position where we are trapped and powerless. And by the way, I hope you see that that is a very apt description of addiction. We want to do right, and in our better moments we say, I don't like this. I don't like what I keep doing. I don't like the fact that I'm enthralled of this substance, but... What can I do? I end up doing it again anyway. It is a sin-slavery relationship. Did I choose it? Well, initially I did, but now I might not even want to choose it, and I keep choosing it. I don't have the ability, Paul says, to stop. So the Bible then teaches that we are unable to set ourselves free from this cycle. We can't do it. And this is the universal pickle sin puts us in. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we can't save ourselves out of the sin. We can't forgive ourselves for the sin. We can't make atonement for our own sins. And in fact, we can't even unenslave ourselves. We can't set ourselves free. Look at how Paul describes it. Verse 21, we're still in Romans 7. Romans 7, 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So he is saying, I have to be set free. Who will deliver me, verse 24, from this body of death? I need a deliverer. I need a savior because I can't do it on my own. I am trapped and powerless. All right, so let's put it all together. Sin has the power to enslave us. We choose it and then we are enslaved and then we are unable to set ourselves free. So is addiction a choice? I would say the answer to that question is yes and no. Now I know that probably sounds like politician talk, but let me explain. So there's a movement in our culture, I mentioned this a moment ago, to call all addiction a disease. And you see that in particular with things like alcoholism, and people will say in the treatment of alcoholism, This is not my choice. It's a disease. And I am sure that there are some body aspects to addiction. I think that science can show you that. But I'm concerned that calling all addiction a disease, it limits our responsibility. If it's a disease, then I have no choice. And I don't see that meshing well with what's in Scripture. See, I may have a strong attraction to or affinity toward a substance or a behavior or even a person but I still choose that, or I choose not to do that. We need to acknowledge that there is a role that our environments play and the people around us play in addiction. Some people are exposed to substances at a very young age or exposed to experiences at a very young age where they're not able to cope with that, and it has an impact on them for the rest of their lives. That's a real thing. We also need to acknowledge that there comes a point where choice is for all practical purposes, lost. 
I think we know sometimes people like that. Sometimes we have been people like that. Some people go so far down the rabbit hole that they do things they don't want to do and something else is completely in charge. We might say something's just taken over. So in answer to this question, is addiction a choice? I say yes and no. Because what I believe is that the Bible teaches that addiction is an initial choice that becomes slavery. And once we are enslaved, there is a a real sense in which our ability to affect our choices is lost until we are set free, until Jesus sets us free. So I want to remind you that the Bible talks about liberation so much. And Jesus talks about the Son setting us free so that we can be free indeed. And Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That there is freedom. And that is not just freedom from sin generally. It is also specifically freedom from addiction. That we can break this cycle of choices we don't want to make because we can know we are forgiven and there is power in the gospel to change us. I also want to encourage us to ask this question. I want us to ask this question of ourselves when we get into addictive behavior, and I want us to ask it of others when they are struggling with addictive behavior. I think there is a deeper question at play. Most experts agree that we turn to addictive substances and actions to in some way medicate or help relieve something that we're suffering from. So the question is, what need or what hurt Is this an attempt to address? We reach out to things when we're hurt or we're upset or we're out of control or we're incomplete or we're scared or we're weak. And we say this thing, this behavior will make me feel better or stronger or complete. And so we reach out to it. And then over time, that becomes the thing we turn to. And what the gospel does is say, we don't turn to a substance or a person or a behavior. We turn to God in those moments where we feel those things. And to be able to move that addictive behavior towards something that is spiritual is the essence of healing out of addiction. And we need to be able to ask ourselves those questions because we cannot just look down on people when they are stuck in addictive ruts because all of us from time to time struggle with behaviors that we shouldn't do because we're feeling these ways. Instead, we need to ask this question and do some introspection and help others do introspection. So is addiction a choice? I would say yes and no, an initial choice that then becomes slavery. All right, second question. Um, All right, how is God punishing the third and fourth generation just? I like to give us a little, you know, whiplash from changing topics really fast. So uh, we need to turn to Exodus chapter 34 here. I'm going to look at a couple of passages We'll look in Exodus 34, and then we'll settle in Exodus 20. Exodus 34. So both of these that we're going to look at right now are statements in the Old Testament about God's statements about himself, things he says about himself in describing himself to the people. Exodus 34 and verse 6, God speaking to Moses, and it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So before we leave this, I want you to notice what's happening. There's a lot of good. God is saying, this is who I am. And he talks about 
slow to anger, steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And all of that, we're, we're smiling. Yeah, like that. God's good, God's favorable, God's forgiving. And then there is that, that last part that is the, the source of the question here. By no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. So that's the question. How is the punishing the third and fourth generation just? Let's go over to Exodus 20 now. This is where I want to settle for the rest of our time. Exodus 20. And Exodus 20 and verse 5, this is in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 and verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them, speaking of the carved images, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So these are a couple of passages that do this. There are other passages that talk about specifically punishing to the third and fourth generation. And the question is just, how is that fair if someone sins and then the third and fourth generations end up suffering and they feel the brunt of the iniquity of the first generation that described, uh, that uh, sinned against God. I hope you see, first of all, there's a juxtaposition in these descriptions. On the one hand, God is saying, I'm good, I'm forgiving, I'm kind, but, but there's another side to me. And you need to know that if, if all we think of God as is loving and forgiving and kind, what kind of people does that produce? It could easily produce the kind of people who are a little bit like indulgent children, you know, indulgent parents of children who the children think they can get away with anything. Well, I mean, after all, dad's a softy. You know, I just go back and say, oh, sorry, dad. And he, he always forgives. He's always fine with it. And God is saying, that, that's not me. I will by no means clear the guilty. And those who hate me, they're going to have problems and not just problems for themselves, but problems through to the future. So I, what I want to do is just give you a few different directions and ideas of some concepts that might help us understand this a little better. The first is the idea of criminal law. Uh, you know, God establishes as a matter of criminal law in Israel that everyone stands for their own crimes. And that's part of the reason we're wondering, why is this just? Because God says in other places things like this. This is Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now notice, that's a criminal law statement. This is about what the government does to people. You don't kill children for their father's sins or fathers for their children's sins. Everybody stands on their own. And that's a principle of criminal law that we continue to uphold today. Nobody says, well, the, the whole family should be punished because one of their members does something wrong. And that is part of how God teaches them to administer justice. There are even some examples of kings who refuse to put to death the children uh, because of this principle, and they are praised for that throughout the, the story of the uh, Old Testament. So how is God doing this just? Well, I want you to know this is not God saying everybody from now on is going to be punished because God does have an understanding and teaches us an understanding of everyone standing for their own sin. There is in the Old Testament the idea of national or corporate responsibility. That is, there are times when the group suffers for the whole, the whole suffers for the sins of one. The most famous example of this is, is Achan. You remember in Achan took some of the spoil in the city of Jericho that he shouldn't have taken. Joshua 7, 11, God says to Joshua, Israel has sinned. 
They have transgressed my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied. What would we say? Well, as individualistic Americans, we would say, wait a minute. I didn't take anything. But God says, no, they did it. Israel sinned. And then Achan says, truly, I have sinned. So which is it? Did Achan sin or did Israel sin? The answer is yes, because God saw them as a whole and he condemned the whole nation because of the actions of one Israelite. And you might ask, well, how is that just? Think about, there are 36 men who die at the battle of Ai. 36 soldiers in the Israelite army. Why did they die? They died because God was not with them because of Achan's sin. Is that fair for them? Well, it's not as if you would say, well, they are being punished for their sin. But in some way, Achan's sin colors the rest, and they are certainly affected by it. Closely related to that is the idea of natural consequences. Sometimes people suffer for the sins of others, including children. That's not necessarily a statement of guilt, by the way. It doesn't mean they've done anything wrong. It just means sometimes those punishments or the suffering that comes because of sin affects other people. We live in a world full of sin, and we experience this all the time. In the Bible, you have David and Bathsheba who have a baby, and the baby dies. Did the baby do anything wrong? So we might ask, well, how is that just? Well, it's not really about the baby and God being unfair to the baby. It's about, in this way, there are natural consequences because of sin, and they are suffering and this baby suffers as a result of what someone else has done. Future generations of Israelites suffer and go into captivity because of the sins, essentially, as I read it, of Manasseh. And Manasseh has done some horrible things, and a lot of people suffer as a result of Manasseh. Are they guilty? Well, in some way, but, but they suffer because there are consequences, and sometimes those consequences are natural. We have this where, where sometimes uh, in our world, Someone will, will suffer, be injured, or killed because someone else is driving while drunk. Sometimes babies will be born with birth defects because of something that their parents did. That's a horrible thing. But we can't say, well, God's not just to those people. Instead, we just have to say, well, sin has consequences, and sometimes those consequences just spiral out. I would say there is no person here who has not been deeply affected by what somebody else did that was wrong. Not because you did wrong, not because God's being unfair to you, but just because that's what sin does. There is also the concept of influence leading to similar results. If you're reading here in Exodus 20 and verse 6, he talks about showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, but, verse 5, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It may be that those who hate me is not a one-time thing, but is a continual idea. Isn't it natural for a person who hates Jehovah to have kids who hate Jehovah, who have kids, who hate Jehovah. And sometimes it becomes, this is who we are. This is our identity. We don't worship God. We hate God. We disobey God. That happens in the Old Testament in the line of Cain. If you follow that line, they are continually rebellious against God. And it just kind of becomes who they are. So it may be that what we're talking about is God noticing the pattern and saying, if you start down this pattern, just know I'm going to oppose you all the way down your genealogy, all the way, third and fourth generation. But I think the best way to read this is just to read it as a warning. It's clear that God is warning. In the ancient world, one of the most important parts of a person's life was their family, 
and how they spread their family out to more and more people and more and more generations in the future. It was a tremendous tragedy to not be able to carry on your line in the ancient mind. And so that contributes to how they think about uh, barrenness. It contributes to how they think about sons and daughters and uh, inheritances. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. After I'm gone, be sure you take care of my kids. So on and so forth. It may be that what God is saying is, don't think that if you oppose me and you hate me, that I won't notice. And don't think that others won't suffer too. Sometimes, when there are warnings about our spiritual state, sometimes we're in a mode where we just are not going to listen. And so instead of saying, you know what, this is going to be bad for you, it's going to be a problem for you, the way God appeals to us is to say, not only you, it's going to be bad for everyone you care about. This will not just hurt you. And sometimes we can get so hard against God that the only thing that will reach us is a warning that relates to those who we love most. So at the end of the day, what we read here doesn't change the fact that if you, if you want to read through this, Ezekiel 18 is a great place to go. It doesn't change the fact that we're responsible for ourselves, that the soul that sins will die and stands before God for its own sins and for its own good. We're going to be influenced by our families. Perhaps we're going to suffer the sting of someone else's evil behavior. And some of us are going to have a choice to make about what we do with the influence of those around us that is for bad. But what God is saying here is that on the other side of grace, there is a side of God that you don't want to tangle with. If you hate God, there will be judgment for that. And that judgment will affect you and it may affect others as well. And so there is a warning there that I think we need to heed. So that is how I make sense of that passage. Thank you so much for your attention this morning. If you have more questions, please give them to me, and I'll be happy to answer those in the future. And we'll, I guess we'll take a break for now. Thank you.